You're listening to AshCast, the podcast of the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation at Harvard Kennedy School. Are the systems actually possible? Is the technology capable of doing what is promised? And if this technology is capable of doing that, would we want that to be implemented? Are the visions that are being promoted desirable ones for the future of cities? And the core argument of my work and my book is that the answer to both of these questions is no. The smart city is a vision full of false promises and hidden dangers. In the smart enough city, putting technology in its place to reclaim our future, Ben Green warns against seeing the city only through the lens of technology. Taking an exclusively technical view of urban life will lead to cities that appear smart, but under the surface are rife with injustice and inequality. He proposes instead that cities strive to be smart enough to embrace technology as a powerful tool when used in conjunction with other forms of social change, but not to value technology as an end in itself. On Tuesday, October 29th, Green joined Kathy Pham, adjunct lecturer in public policy at Harvard Kennedy School, for a discussion at the Ash Center. Stephen Goldsmith, director of the Ash Center's Government Innovations Program and Daniel Paul Professor of the Practice of Government, moderated. Uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us uh, for this um, conversation about Smart Enough. Um, and we've got two great presenters, one who wrote the book, uh, ben Green, who is uh, affiliated with Berkman in NYU and is an uh, expert on many of the issues that we have talked about over here, uh, the uh, equity and fairness and algorithms and criminal justice and social policy. Kathy is um, uh, expert in ethics um, and technology, uh, is, um, teaches at uh, HKS and is affiliate with the Berkman Center as well, and Shorenstein. Um, so what we're going to do is have Ben speak and then Kathy rebut what he said and then turn it over <laughs> to the audience. Uh, uh, a book is an interesting one, I would say, um, Ben. Uh, years ago, I was sitting in New York City Hall, and this fellow came up and said, we have 10,000 uh, phone booths in New York City that are put to little use other than for vandalism. What else could they be? So from that, they became 10,000 Link NYC uh, smart technology pedestals supporting uh, broadband wireless, which I generally thought was a really good idea until I read the first chapter of your book and found out that I wasn't wasn't such a good idea. So um, Ben will. Uh, so now what we're going to do is Ben will tell you about his book, including what I did wrong with uh, Link NYC, and then we'll talk to Kat, and then we'll have Kathy will comment, and then we'll turn it over to all of you for questions. Uh, and about uh, so about uh, Ben will speak for about twenty plus minutes, and then Kathy will speak, and then we'll turn over open it up for questions. So uh, please greet uh, Ben Green. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Steve, for the introduction. And thanks to all of the Ash Center and other Kennedy School folks who helped to organize this event and put it on. And thanks to everyone for coming out. I'm really excited to be able to talk about this book and this project with all of you, and especially with uh, Kathy and Steve, who have so much to add to this topic that I'll be talking about. So to give a little context of where I'm coming from, this book is really bringing together a couple different perspectives and experiences that I've had around cities and technology. 
The first is sort of as in my academic work as a computer scientist. I'm a PhD student in the computer science department here at Harvard and have spent a lot of time thinking about how to develop and explain and how to audit technologies that are being used in government. And as part of that work, went and spent a year in Boston City Hall as a data scientist. Uh, that was a project that was funded by the Taubman Center here at the Kennedy School. And throughout all of that, have also spent a lot of time studying the social sciences and the uh, broader social impacts of technology to understand from a non-computer science perspective, what are these technologies doing? What does it mean when we are deploying technology in society and how should we understand that? So the book really covers three broad topics and I'll organize the talk around them. The first is this idea of technology as a solution for social problems. Where does that idea come from and how can we understand it? And we can think about the smart city as a manifestation of this type of vision. I'll then discuss some of the limits of technology for social change. Why uh, technology, technological efforts to solve social problems can go wrong. And then finally, I'll think about some of the ways that we can use technology well in cities and uh, not just throw the entire project away, but understand how to bring together technological and other perspectives to address social problems. So we can start by just defining and thinking about what is a smart city. And I think it's best to sort of go to the source, one of the technology companies that are driving this vision. And we can look at Cisco. They write, by definition, a smart cities are those that integrate information communications technology across three or more functional areas. More simply put, a smart city is one that combines traditional infrastructure, roads, buildings, and so on, with technology to enrich the lives of its citizens. And so this sort of matches the general description of what the word smart has come to mean across society, from the smartphones to smart homes to the smart toaster or the smart toothbrush, right? We're deploying, taking traditional objects and putting digital technology inside of them, whether that's internet connection, data collection, algorithms. We're putting that inside traditional items and objects and processes. And in the smart city, there's a wide range of technologies that are part of it. It's not a singular vision of a specific technology or process, but an array of different types of technologies that get deployed in different cities and across different purposes and different agencies. So they range from sensors that are put up on street poles that can collect information about the surrounding conditions. These might be able to collect temperature and weather information or collect information about the people who are interacting or are nearby through cameras and sensors and connecting to the digital devices in your pockets. There are self-driving cars, of course, automated vehicles that are able to drive around without a human driver. Uh, algorithms and machine learning and artificial intelligence are a central part of this, taking all of the data that's collected by sensors and by other agencies to analyze that data in various ways to understand what's happening and forecast what will happen in the future. And various types of smartphone apps and other connectivity functions that try to connect people to one another and people to the city government. And so all of these different technologies are deployed in different ways across cities and across different agencies in different functional areas. And so it makes the smart city both a hard one to pin down and also a very expansive one, that it's this broad vision of applying these technologies to cities and 
every city has a slightly different spin on what that looks like. But across the board, the smart city has emerged as this pretty consensus vision for what the future of cities and municipal governance will look like, from the federal government to major tech companies to city governments to uh, federal and local governments around the world, the smart city is something that's being quite eagerly pursued and approached. And in the United States, just about every city has some sort of smart city project or vision and often brand themselves based on these smart city visions. Kansas City, Missouri calls itself the world's most connected smart city. San Diego brands itself as having the world's largest smart city platform. So this is a really important sense of the city's self-image and their vision for the future that they're pitching to their constituents and to businesses and to other places. And so as we look at these approaches that are really centering technology as the solution to the whole host of urban challenges that cities face nowadays, we also have to start scratching beneath the surface and asking a couple of questions. Are the systems actually possible? Is the technology capable of doing what is promised? And if this technology is capable of doing that, would we want that to be implemented? Are the visions that are being promoted desirable ones for the future of cities? And the core argument of my work and my book is that the answer to both of these questions is no. The smart city is a vision full of false promises and hidden dangers. So what are the limits of using technology to solve as the centerpiece of solving these social problems? And there are really three broad issues that I'll talk about. The first is how this approach distorts our understanding of what the problems are in the first place. There are limits to the technology itself at what it's capable of. And then there are fundamental aspects of the technological architecture, how the smart city technology is designed that is able to reshape power and decision-making in fundamental ways that often don't get paid enough attention to. So the broad vision that, we can, that I think of when I think about where smart cities come from is this idea of tech goggles. This particular vision of the world, sort of endemic to uh, engineers, but certainly one that others share, adopted by from the engineers, that sees every aspect of society as a technology problem, that wants to turn every problem into a technology problem and wants to find technological solutions. And there's really two broad myths that are underlying this vision. The first, that technology drives social change that the way of pursuing progress is to implement new technology and that that technology is what will, will prompt such progress. And second, that the technology is neutral and objective, that the solutions and progress that will be achieved is driven by technology and can be socially optimal. Uh, we even have folks like the former president of IBM saying, if the leaders of smarter city systems do share an ideology, it is this we believe in a smarter way to get things done. So there's this idea that technology and being smart sort of transcends politics and broader questions of equity and decision-making and is, can just be sort of decided on by everyone as a better way of doing things. Now, we can begin to wonder about what sorts of visions come from this. And the simulation that maybe is a little bit difficult to see here is one vision of smart cities that's been put forward by some researchers that I think is sort of the, a great encapsulation of what these types of visions do and where they go wrong. So what this is trying to show is a city 
street intersection with self-driving cars and how with the advent of automated vehicles, we can get rid of congestion, we can get rid of traffic lights and let the cars sort of sort themselves out. They won't, will drastically eliminate congestion. But what's remarkable about looking at this vision is not the speed at which these cars are zooming through the intersections, but everything else that's not part of this simulation. There are no people, there are no bike cyclists, there are no buses, there's barely even buildings. It's hard to even imagine that this is a city at all, and it's hard to imagine who might even be using those crosswalks that are so clearly painted in the middle of the intersections. And what's remarkable in particular is that this is not just an abstract depiction of any intersection or a you know, rural highway freeway interchange, but is actually a simulation of a specific intersection in downtown Boston that looks like this. Uh, it's the intersection of Mass Ave and Columbus Ave uh, by around the south end. And if you go out to that street corner, you'll see people walking around. You'll see tons of cyclists. It's right along the route of the one bus. And so there's this entire context of what's going on here, both in terms of mobility and also in terms of the broader uh, social structure of the city. This is really at the epicenter of, the, of Methadone Mile, which is where the epicenter of Boston's opioid epidemic. So there's this incredible amount of both mobility and other social context that's happening here that has been completely erased to create this optimization. By eradicating this complexity, we are getting a solution of this street without traffic or congestion, but in turn, we're uh, erasing everything else that we might think is valuable on these streets. So I think of this as a process of distortion, where the lens of tech goggles looks at a city street like this and instead sees a vision of an urban streetscape really dominated by a vision of technology, of uh, discrete objects that can be modeled and predicted and analyzed in a computational manner. And so rather than recognizing the complexity and the politics of these aspects of urban life, smart city idealists describe cities as abstract technical processes to be optimized using sensors and data and algorithms. And the process of solving these abstracted versions of social problems often creates more problems than it solves, unexpected problems, and has a great deal of underlying politics in terms of what gets decided to be modeled and what gets decided to be ignored in these things. So I'll talk about a couple explicit exa or specific examples of technologies and some of the work that I did in Boston and some of the broader landscape of smart cities that shows the limits of these visions and where they can go wrong and sort of the deeper underlying issues. So the first lesson that, one of the first lessons that we learned in Boston really clearly was that social problems are not technology problems. One of the projects we were working on was helping the city create, do a better job of uh, disseminating and sharing open data with the public, data sets that we were collecting from agencies and other departments and sharing that information with the public so that they could do something useful with it. And so we, rather than just staying inside City Hall and thinking about what to do, we went out and tried to talk to people across the city and went to a bunch of different libraries to say, to catch just the average passerby and say, you know, what information are you looking for? What sorts of questions do you have? What sorts of data would you like to see? And what we found was that these conversations were incredibly brief. We would stop a person and ask them what data they'd like to see from the city of Boston. 
and their faces would go blank, and they would very politely try to end that conversation as quickly as possible. But it's not that they were rude and didn't want to talk to us. We just weren't asking the right questions. When we stopped them and we said, how do you like the libraries? How long have you lived in this neighborhood? What sorts of things are you concerned about? A very different picture emerged. We had long, really rich conversations with folks and a whole range of issues ranging from policing to affordable housing to buses and transportation and education. All of these things came up. But what became clear was that these were not fundamentally problems that were clearly connected to the data itself or to any sort of open data that we could provide to them. As one Boston resident put it, information is fine, but I want a way to influence what's happening. And so it's very clear that technology does not just magically empower people. There's this vision around smart cities and open data that by putting the data or other technology in people's hands, we will create a more democratic society that will magically empower people. And that vision, as we saw here and in many other cases in smart cities, fails to actually account for the particular dynamics of what are these problems and what are the ways of trying to remedy them. Another lesson that we encountered in Boston was that data can be misleading or biased. One of the projects I was working on was trying to use data to inform how we repair sidewalks. There are obviously tons of sidewalks in the city of Boston, and the city has a limited budget for how to repair those sidewalks. So we were trying to use data to say, how can we prioritize our investments towards the sidewalks that most need it, that will most benefit people if we can repair those sidewalks? So traditionally, what the city had been doing was looking at requests for service from the city's 311 app. So looking at places where a member of the public had taken out their iPhone or other smartphone, taken a picture of a broken sidewalk, and submitted that picture requesting service for improvements. But we wanted to know, does that actually tell us where we should be doing the sidewalk repairs? Is that a good guide? So we compared the request for service with another assessment that we had done of sidewalk quality. And what we found was an incredibly different image of the city. On the left here is the is sidewalk quality, where the, the heat map, the red blobs, show the lowest quality sidewalks. And so we can see that there are sidewalks in need of repair pretty much across the city, although clustered in certain neighborhoods. And then we compared that to the map of where requests for service are coming in for repairs. And if you look at that map on the right, it's entirely in downtown Boston, uh, Back Bay, South End, Financial District, right? So that paints an entirely different picture. And had we simply followed that data, we would be focusing all of our repairs in one neighborhood, tip the neighborhood with the most resources, the most well-off constituents, and ignoring the rest. And what we realized was that this data is telling us something very different than what we expect, that we might think the information is telling us about where, where sidewalks need repair. But what this information was actually telling us is, where are there clusters of people who have smartphones and think that this is an issue that they will should get fixed and that they can trust the government that they will submit the photo and that problem will get fixed? And when you think of it that way, you're seeing a very different portrait and a very different outcome emerges. So, you have to be very careful, all of these cities that are trying to rely on data really as the backbone of this technology have to be incredibly careful about understanding the data within its broader context to understand what it actually means and not just what we think it means or what we might want it to mean in an ideal world. 
And then there are questions of the architecture of this technology and the way that the design and structure of the technology can reshape urban power and politics without being explicitly intended to do so or without many of us even realizing that's happening. So many of the tech, much of the technology, as I've mentioned, of the smart city relies on collecting data about the public. And that data means that someone is collecting that data and massively, it massively is expanding the reach of surveillance, both for law enforcement who has access to this information as well as for private companies through projects like Link NYC that, while in some ways providing a valuable benefit, are also operating behind the surface uh, by allowing law enforcement and companies and other agencies to collect incredible amounts of data about the public. And then there are broader questions of privatization and decision-making, where much of smart cities rely on public-private partnerships with companies who are able to provide the technology and provide the sources to develop and manage the technology. But then often the decisions about what the technology is doing and what sorts of assumptions and values are being baked into the models and the, the apps themselves and the infrastructure themselves are handed over to these companies who are unaccountable. Typically, it's impossible to get information about what the technology companies are doing because of trade secrets and other protections. And so much of the decision-making that was typically the authority of public bodies is being shifted over to private bodies. A particularly salient example of this is in Toronto, where Sidewalk Labs is operating a project to develop an entire city neighborhood, where Sidewalk Labs has sort of asked for control of this entire development project, even gone so far as asking for some of the tax revenue, and even without, before given the license to do so, expanding the reach of their development plans uh, by an order of magnitude in terms of how much land they're expecting to be managing. So there are these broad questions about what are the structure of how these smart cities are operating and what are the ways that we're bringing in technology and who's controlling that technology. But now I want to shift to thinking about how can we use technology well? What are ways of reorienting these relationships, understanding these limits in a way that can help us actually solve some urban problems in real ways while understanding the limits of technology but also bringing the opportunities to bear in a responsible way? So the shift that I advocate is the framing of the book is towards smart enough city. So inserting this word enough into the framing here. And the key idea is that the language of smart cities prevents a very singular, narrow axis of progress. A smart city is one where there's more technology, and a smarter city then is one with more technology. Be doing better along the scale of a smart city is solely focused on the technology as much as there are often peripheral aspects that people will discuss in relation to that technology. So the goal of bringing in this word enough is to, to change the focus from the technology as an end in itself, but as a means towards broader outcomes around justice and equity and mobility, and really framing the question of what are we trying to accomplish away from technology towards, if we're trying to be smart enough, what are we trying to be smart enough for? What outcomes are we trying to pursue? So I'll talk about two specific visions of what this looks like in practice, what different cities are doing to make better use of technology, both in terms of outcomes for residents and in terms of the internal infrastructural processes that they're managing to 
inform and work with data more effectively. So the first story is in Columbus, Ohio, which in 2015 or 2016 won a $40 million grant from the Department of Transportation to create a first-of-its-kind smart transportation system. And what one might expect when they hear this sort of thing, smart cities vision, transportation, is a vision of self-driving cars, zooming through town, everyone having access to Uber and all of those things just seamlessly as possible to get around. But Columbus didn't focus on the technology, but instead focused on the ways in which technology and mobility are connected to social mobility and social outcomes related to equity, and then focused on what technology could do within that. So Columbus had a couple different things that they had been working on for a long time. The first was re-envisioning its urban planning strategy. As a, over the last century, the city had really pursued a vision of sprawl, uh, growing outwardly while neglecting the urban core and had spent a long time doing a 30- or 50-year visioning process that said, what do we want the urban planning of this city to look like? How does that connect to mobility? How can we promote more mixed use and dense urban development over the next 30 years? And then the second piece was focusing on uh, high infant mortality and poor prenatal health care in some of the poorest neighborhoods in the city. There are certain highly segregated neighborhoods, where they've been really focusing on improving access to health care, access in particular to prenatal and postnatal care for mothers. And so both of these initiatives, they brought to bear on their focus on technology. So rather than jumping straight to the tech, they thought about what are we doing? What are the goals that we're trying to accomplish? How can technology help us? And so they went out and talked to the residents in these neighborhoods to really understand what are their challenges, what are their needs, and they found a much more complex and uh, thorny set of issues than they might have expected. It's not simply access to uh, you know, a self-driving car that, the, that these mothers might need, but they need better access just to information about the public transit, uh, better ways of paying for these systems, especially Uber and whatnot. If they don't have access to credit cards, these systems typically rely on smartphones and credit cards to pay for them. Uh, even childcare, so that they can have their other children taken care of while they go to the doctor or while they go to a job interview. And so by looking at it from this broader perspective, actually understanding the wide range of issues that people were facing, uh, they were able to come up with many different solutions that none of which seem sort of your flashy, smart city, amazing solution, but together were much more holistically able to capture some of the issues that or address some of the issues that residents were facing. And the challenge for the city was to understand where are these units, which ones are infected, which ones have we cleaned, all of that. And the problem was that the city didn't actually know. There was no comprehensive data set of where these cooling towers existed or which buildings had one. So there was this, in the, in the midst of this outbreak of this disease, this crisis that they needed to manage as quickly as possible, there was not just a sort of typical public health emergency, but really a data emergency, a question of how can we bring together data to paint a picture of where we need to go, what's going on, what's our status. And the problem was the city lacked this data, and even the different pieces of information that different departments had were completely disconnected from one another. They were not 
organized in a way such that they could talk to each other and allow someone to create the comprehensive picture from these data sets. So out of this process, they were able to pull things together and ultimately use some, some algorithms to help address the crisis. But out of this process that they had, they realized what they needed to be doing was really focusing on the internal day-to-day ways of managing the data and technology infrastructure. It wasn't just a question of collecting more data because it would be impossible to know exactly what data set would be needed in a future crisis, but understanding, but really bringing together and improving their knowledge of how do we work with data, how do we collect data in a way that makes it amenable to analysis, and how can we make sure that that information is able to be shared across government. So the main thing, one of the things that they did was to create a a form of what they call data drills, essentially fire drills, but for city departments trying to work with data, thinking about rather than just coming across these issues in a real crisis, creating a simulated crisis where everyone gets together for two days and learns what this data can tell them, how to bring it together, and how to work with it in a fast-paced environment and actually understand how to use it well. Uh, as well as creating various more comprehensive systems that are able to bring different data sets together from across agencies that normally don't work together and help them paint this broader picture of data and help them use it effectively. So I'll stop there and turn things over to uh, Kathy for a response. Thanks. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Um, I'm going to... I really like the slide you had for this one. I'm going to keep it there for a little bit. How many folks in the room have either been vendors or contractors where you were the one in the company selling to a government entity? Has anyone been a few folks in the room? And how many of you have been in some kind of a leadership or government role where you were the ones buying or influencing buying of the technology? A lot more folks. <laughs> Conversation will be awesome afterwards. So Ben had... Um, asked if I would come today, and uh, my first question was, well, which which aspects of my, my background do you think would be interesting for this? Um, and so I spent uh, about a decade building technology in the private sector um, at, at Google, and then um, in 2014, went into the public sector building out something called the United States Digital Service, which is a tech startup inside government at the White House. Um, and these days, since two years ago, I spend a lot of time thinking about ways we can build more responsible technology in the private sector. Um, and then as a public sector, ways we build technologies that don't fail the society we're trying to serve. Um, and I spent some time at IBM and saw how contracting works and how big companies will sell products to governments, whether or not they actually work but they just sell them anyways, and governments buy them, and after some $10 million and five years, no one's better off. And those of you who have bought technologies for government, that probably sounds familiar. And then also saw how inside tech companies, we would build technology, and our whole task is to just build really, really good technology to let you do whatever it is you want to do. What I mean by that is we want to empower you to collect more data. We want to empower you to have the fastest car to go through a city unassisted um, without the understanding of the social climate that you are going to parachute into, because that's not our task. And so when I think about um, Ben's book and these three points of 
technology as the solution. That's what we, and my background is also in computer science. That's what we learn in engineering school. We build technology to be the solution. The societal implications, the economic climate, the political climate around us, put that aside. We build technology. Um, the limits of technology for, for social change. Um, if, how many of you have worked in a big, uh, like, tech company, a private sector tech company? There's quite a few, um, this general sense that your tech is changing the world. If you walk into and just sit down, maybe not so much in the last two or three years because of the state that tech is in right now, but before that, if you go sit in any of the big tech companies, I mean, your people are there because they want to change the world. And it's this idea that you're building technology and you're changing the world, but zero recognition of, like, oftentimes, very little recognition of the limits of that technology. Um, and then using technology well, we just default um, um, to many of the things Ben, ben said. Um, so I think what I really, really wanted um, to leave you all with um, are to think about, it's, it's really complicated um, to have someone, maybe not complicated, but, but today, if we're in a government, we don't really have this ideal team where the government employees themselves are people who deeply understand technology, deeply understand data, um, deeply understand how to even do human-centered design, user experience, et cetera, and understand government, understand policies, understand the community, and we really need all those pieces in the same place to really know what it takes to build a smart city or a smarter city or a smart enough city. Otherwise, what you're left with is you have some tech company going into some government saying, I have all these ideas, it's so great. You can use this technology to solve all of your problems. You'll take homeless people off the streets. You'll, everyone who um, should get benefits will get access to social benefits. Um, any student that wants to go to college can get information at any point in time to tell them exactly what school they want to go to. Any, every single veteran in the United States of America will get access to health care. We have the technology to do this for you. All the things I personally have heard at some level of government, either in the state level or the federal level. And when you don't have people informed inside government to make those decisions, which we don't really have right now, we end up in this cycle where we buy technologies that might not work, then we try and deploy them to our cities, and we ultimately don't really solve the social problems we're trying to buy the technology to solve, and oftentimes we propagate the problem. So in the United States alone, we spend $86 billion on federal IT, that number may seem a lot or low, depending on, I guess, what sector you really work in. Um, but 94% of that, this is the number from, I think, 2017, either are delayed, never delivered, never see the light of day, or just don't don't work. The smart city stuff falls in that same category, and it's, it's complex why that it, it doesn't work. Like, part of it is not having enough expertise. Part of it is vendors preying on governments. Part of it is the procurement laws we have in this country. But it's really good to remember and think about that when we're thinking, when someone is selling something like a smart cities platform um, um, to just make all of our all of our cities smarter and better um, and make lives for our citizens better. Um, and what else? There was something else you said that I wanted to make sure I... Well, Kathy, let me, let me while you look at that, let me ask yeah. you and Ben a question. Yeah. Starting to Ben, and then we'll go to audience questions, and then uh, you think of it, feel free to chime in. And, yep. uh, some, some folks have to leave at yep. one And I'll classes. just sit down as well. So, yeah, so Ben, um, well, I'm just going to ask one. Mm -hmm. um, 
So I, we run a program here at Ash called Data Smart City Solutions, where we try to evangelize officials to do the things you caution against, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so, um, if you an alternative definition of smart city might be how smart officials are and the community in using data to make better decisions, right? So whether you think about the biases and the algorithms or you think about everyday activities, and not disagreeing with the comment you and Kathy both made about context, but, but what, about the, what about the argument that the way we act without being a smart city, without the data, just perpetuates the, the status quo, perpetuates, say, so let, let's just take an example, you know, where there's a lot of legitimate complaints about biases and algorithms. But there ought to be a lot of complaints about biases in everyday activity that isn't evaluated by the algorithm. So my basic question is, let's think about this as um, smart city defined by, how, by smart decision making, and then how does that affect your kind of three-part analysis? Yeah, that's a, it's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot of different pieces that I've thought about in that dimension quite a bit. Uh, you know, I think that sort of the broadest question there, right, is this question of change. What is, what is our comparison point? And I think that one of the things that's definitely out there when you sort of, a lot of the smart city conversation is, right, it is set up against this dichotomy against the, the dumb city, right? There's sort of a sense, well, if we're not doing this, then you're a dumb city, you're stuck in the past, you're against innovation, you're against progress. And I think that that, that framing of the smart city is incredibly narrowing and incredibly limits our understanding of what the possibilities are for change. So the, the comparison to me is not between is this specific type of technology better than doing nothing, which sometimes that is, sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't, but what are the broad range of things that we can try to do what are the many opportunities that are available to us as pathways of innovation? And then what role can technology play within that? And how can we shift our thinking around the role of technology away from the sort of, we're going to take the technology, we're going to put it onto this problem to a different way of thinking about it. Um, I think that the, you know, the, the point around smarter decision-making and informing public officials, I completely agree with. I think a lot of that is sort of how I would frame, you know, falls very much within the sort of last story I was telling about New York, about bringing this data to bear for public officials in a new way. I think that I see a lot of trying to reclaim the word what smart city means, and I agree with many of those alternative visions that are put forward, but I think that the word, like, just what it fundamentally means is this vision around technology. It was sort of, if you look at where the vision come from, in many ways, it's one that's been developed and sort of pushed forward by the multinational technology companies, much, of, you know, especially early days, Cisco and IBM and now Google and others. But so I think just the framework of smart city, as much as we may try to redefine what we're applying smart to or what is smart is 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 hard to get out of that still technologically centric mode of thinking. I, yeah, I really appreciate you bringing up the point of um, this is the status quo in real life. We have real life bias. We have scenarios in real life where um, 
there are things in, for example, there, there are streets that need to be fixed. There are, there are, um, potholes that get, don't get paved. There are people who don't get access to care, et cetera. And so therefore we're looking for all these solutions, um, to figure out how to solve them. And yes, technology, I, I, I build technology and I'm going to continue to probably do so for a very long time because I believe that technology can really help us in many ways. But at the same time, I think when we blindly buy technology without really understanding the impacts that it can have, we can make things, make those same problems a lot worse rather than make them better. I think one of my biggest concerns is we don't have, don't necessarily have the people in our governments to know how it can make it worse or how it can make it better. And we end up buying something and it actually just makes things worse. For us, so why spend ten million dollars on something only to have it worse than what we already have? Questions, audience. Jerry, you've been I mean, a technology face from my past, so you've been you've taught it, you've sold it, you've evaluated it. Right. So, kind of, have you been on all sides of this for twenty five years? Um, twenty five is a calm number. Uh, there's two things I was thinking about as I was listening to this. Uh, one is that yes, in any analytic process, we define a problem and it simplifies it. So there is a danger that we yeah. sort of narrowed in on the wrong problem, and therefore the data we collect can be very misleading, as you were showing. So in many ways, I agree with you, but also would say that set of problems have been around with us for a very long period of time. What seems to me important and not necessarily addressed in, in what you were looking at, it might or might not really be important, and I'm back to Steve to, to see on this. At the Kennedy School, we often talk about when is it that people want to work together rather than working on their own? Because if you're not needing to work with somebody else, many people would rather just do it themselves. There are three criteria for it works well as a group. We're more productive as a group. And productivity, I was a budget director, so I often ran the numbers to try to say per dollar spent over a certain period of time on a certain kind of problem, what's more productive. However, much of the real world decision making goes on the other two factors. And those are, do we think the decisions are fair? Do we distribute the results to the right sort of people? And that is a negotiation among people that we fight over and fight very fiercely over. And sometimes people would rather not even analyze that problem because even talking about it may make it harder to solve. And we know it's hard to solve because we've set up an authority structure that will get us a decision when we need to. The military forever has known that, you know, if you're in the middle of a battle, that's not when you say, well, let's stop and call a meeting and get a consensus. <laughs> you have to have a fast response. So the things, I'm sorry to go on, uh, on on this realm, but it seems to me we need to analyze, particularly as technology goes from just calculating how we get to the moon or calculating accounting, which is a task, not an entire structure of an institution in a society. We're now starting to engage so many more people mm -hmm. that the bigger issues are becoming equity, and trust that the authority is right. And so I would be very interested in seeing, as we seek to apply technology more and more, are we getting better ways to think about priorities okay. in resolving issues that are issues of equity and trust in addition to the traditional issues of productivity? Yeah. Mm -hmm.
The last thing I'll say is going back to, to Steve years and years and years ago, when I was pushing technology largely on the productivity ground, as a politician in a Midwestern state, <clears throat> he was suggesting that most of his audience didn't ever believe that government would be more productive, but did see the coming of jobs leaving the Midwest, as they have, and worried a lot about that issue. And that was the frame that he put on it in talking. So instinctively, as a politician, he was looking very directly at the equity issues and the things that would motivate people to understand that he was making smart decisions and productivity wasn't as important as competitiveness, which people understood. So, Ben, um, putting aside the uh, app-driven calls for service in Boston for a second, which I thought that was really interesting, (laughs) but uh, respond to Jerry in terms of how you think technology is either going to aggravate the equity issues Mm -hmm. or mitigate the equity. Yeah, it's, I mean, the questions of equity and trust are comp- really the central questions of smart cities. I completely agree. And I think that there are things there, are, and it really pushes in both directions. I think that uh, much of what I was talking about in terms of, you know, algorithms that can be relying on biased data, uh, systems that are ha- in massively increasing surveillance, and systems that are handing over control to the companies, those are places where I see issues of equity often getting worse from technology, even technologies that may be billed as addressing some dimensions of equity. Uh, and whether that's applications, you know, in policing or other contexts where we have or welfare, and there have been examples of algorithms that are meant to make these systems better, but because of the interactions of both what the algorithm is doing and how the people how people are interacting with those systems the equity problems actually often get exacerbated. There are, however, a number of ways in which I see the public really trying to put forward different ways of, and then there's questions of authority, right? So what I see as the major shift in terms of creating better outcomes along the equity and trust dimension is about questions of authority. So shifting these outcomes towards, you know, one of the major trends that I've really seen has been uh, public pushback against the surveillance, against this technology that has led to various forms of ordinances in cities, uh, Cambridge, Somerville, San Francisco, Oakland, Berkeley, that are shifting the decision-making authority away from just an agency itself around surveillance technology or algorithmic technology and towards a broader public input into these systems. So saying before you develop this system that's going to be putting sensors on every street and collecting a ton of data, that has to be, there has to be a city council hearing, there has to be a public comment, you need to do audits on those systems. So, and, and that has, even in, uh, in Boston, or I think it was in Cambridge, where the ACLU showed that that actually, having that in place, even just for, it's only been enacted for about six months, has limited the police department's use of mm-hmm. some technologies and limited their procurement of certain technologies. But, Kathy, uh, just get you to respond and mm-hmm. we're going to take another question. But but um, you, you think about data and equity. So let's go to, like, you know, Ben's map of 311 app calls versus mm-hmm. the, the street uh, conditions uh, mapped otherwise. Yep. That doesn't strike me as technology aggravating uh, equity. It strikes me as a lack of imagination on how to use the data that's around from, right? So, so think about examples in your work where 
data enlivened a public conversation to, to resolve the equity issues as contrasted to merely aggregated the equity issues. I think you actually hit a key point there where oftentimes data should be used to enliven a conversation where like, this is a data set. These are all the 301 calls. Here's a map of Boston. And someone who knows the region will be able to tell you pretty quickly the nuances of Somerville, Boston, Roxbury, Cambridge, uh, Cape Cod, et cetera. But, like, someone who's removed from the situation may just end up making a decision about the city without understanding those nuances. So you see cases like that with, for example, Amazon Prime, where they decided that based on their data, they weren't just going to deliver to, I believe it was Roxbury or Dorchester. It was Roxbury. and But no one in Seattle understood. Anyone who looked at that map would have been like, we know what you're doing. But um, people who don't are just data-driven and make decisions off the data. So if in the ideal world you have a data set and it enlivens the conversation and it drives conversation to make decisions on what you should do, that's great. Oftentimes I think what we'll see is the results of the data make it into some product decision without really checkpoints along the way to say, oh, wait a minute, that that looks a little weird. Um, and so I, do, I think there are cases where people are able to look at the data, but we oftentimes in government, probably because of the lack of understanding of what to do with the data, just take it at face value, then go do something with it, and, and then to Ben's point, make the problems and yeah. inequity even worse. Mark, we got a whole bunch of hands. Let's Some take two or three questions. We'll come back. Is that right? Yes, sure. Uh, Mark, and then we got a couple back right here. This issue of data and equity is a very important one, and I think uh, we're talking about equity in, in not a particularly uh, differentiated or useful way, right? So, one idea of data and equity is whether people have equal opportunity to participate in the process of decision-making about how public assets are going to be used. And it seems to me that uh, the use of digital technology along with social media and stuff like that holds great opportunities and great perils for equality in political discussion and discourse and stuff like that, as well as the technical quality of what's being discussed within those, uh, those realms. So equity in decision-making. There's another kind of equity which has to do with whether – uh, data helps us see the degree to which the things that we're producing at the individual and the collective level for citizens are fair or not because they allow us to uh, observe differences among individuals and between geographic areas, both at the individual level and at the aggregate level, and therefore to incorporate in our judgments about whether something is good, uh, efficient, and effective, also an idea about whether it seems en route to the production of a more just as well as a more prosperous society. So you can imagine. So participate uh, equally, uh, see the results. But this, I think, also then connects up very importantly with the um, uh, the question about what data and in what um, and the and algorithms. Can you put your slide of the uh, the uh, the taxi cab? I mean, not the taxi cab. That the the pavement pavement one. So one way to observe this, um, it's kind of an interesting way to think about it because what you've got on the right-hand side there is in some sense effective demand, understood as client services, all right? And so a good government service is one that responds to customers, all right? And the customers show up with uh, demands and political power, all right? What we have on the left is professional judgments about what represents a good sidewalk, <laughs> Right, and so in the second picture there, we have a professional's estimate of whether they're how evenly distributed good sidewalks are, and on the second, we've got a consumer vision of what good sidewalks are, where just as consumers guide markets because they have more money, 
Consumers with more confidence in political power, as you mentioned, can guide markets if we pay attention to them, to their purposes, rather than others through the political system, right? And I would use this as a way to describe why one of the bad ideas associated with technology would be to empower clients. Yes. All right? That in some sense, a part of your idea about equity would be to empower a global professional view of what's happening and then to speak for the people that haven't been represented adequately either at the client level or at the citizen level in the uh, operations going forward, okay? Last point, and this is the one that's most troubling for me, is that if you look at, I do a lot of work in policing and child protection and uh, a lot of things like that, and gradually the algorithms are essentially critically important devices for um, prioritizing particular populations that are to be uh, engaged in an effort to improve conditions, all right? So we're always trying to distinguish high-risk people from low-risk people in that area, all right? That nearly always involves the consumption of, quote, a profile, all right? And notice that we construct that for two quite different reasons. On one hand, when we're thinking like trying to become more efficient and effective, we're trying to think about a triage system that allows us to get the resources to the people who uh, could use it the most or benefit from it the most, all right? Um, when we're thinking about, uh, from a um, justice point of view, we're trying to think about people who would need or deserve it the most. And virtually every service delivery scheme in the government has some eligibility standards that are set up to just say these people deserve it and these people don't, all right? They are also then shaped partly by our concerns for efficiency and effectiveness, which is let's make sure the resources go to the people who are most needy. Every single one of those uh, those systems of sorting people are going to be making errors of uh, two types, all right? Uh, and sometimes they'll be racially associated and not. And so getting people to understand that profiles are everywhere and they're used for the purposes of both efficiency and justice, and their quality has to be adjudicated on those things, is a critical part of uh, applied uses of technology. So, Ben, I'm going to get a couple student questions. Ah, yes, thanks. Uh, Katie Kang, I'm a student here, but also I used to work at State Office. Thanks for this. I'm curious about uh, both of your perspectives on data that is not, that is not originated in the public domain, but in the private ones. So I'm thinking about Uber and Lyft and our transportation planning. I'm thinking about autonomous vehicle crash data about public safety. So there's a tension between data that private sector has and their business interests and the use that it could uh, be that it could be good, put to good use for public entities. Any thoughts on how to productively have that conversation now um, about privately held data? So it's funny. I don't know if you, this is something the city of Boston was working on. I don't know what years you were there, but we actually had a Yasha Franklin Hodge, who was the CIO, had a big fight with Uber because they had done a whole PR blitz around sharing data and then didn't actually share much. Uh, and so there was a big fight. And now I think the two tensions, they're really just, there's both the opportunity of what can this data share and tell us and then on the flip side are what are the privacy implications of this incredibly detailed granular data about where people are traveling all the time. And so what there's a there's at Los Angeles has created a new mobility data standard for data sharing. Uh, this is a place where I see city governments have their value and city governments actually having their licensing and permitting be contingent on some form of data sharing. They have the authority to do that type of thing. 
But at the same time, there are some very tricky questions about what data is shared, who manages that data to ensure that, you know, all of Uber's data doesn't just end up in, in, a, in the public domain, which we also wouldn't, wouldn't want to happen. I, I love this, um, this topic in general. I, I feel like we're right at the beginning of trying to figure this out. Um, there's a group that's called Data and Donuts that Vanessa Ryan Smith runs where they talk about some of these topics. Because um, on one hand, you're like, I work for a company that pretty much probably has one of the largest data sets in the world, which is Google. And on one hand, you're like, some of this data should be public, whether it's Uber, Lyft, or some other data, or should at least share it with government. Um, but then what does that mean for privacy and sharing with governments? And if they do decide to do that, what does that look like? And what kind of violations do we have there? I don't think we really have rules or even policies in place to really deeply understand that yet. Um, and, and so I think we're just right in the beginning of figuring out some of these, these answers. Um, there's, there are companies that are now opening up their data sets to academic researchers via like more official IRB routes where you take a lot of care with the data. Um, but you could also imagine a case where, I don't know, one of these companies shares information with some department somewhere and then now really marginalized communities get exploited because government now knows a lot more about them. Um, so, I don't, I don't think anyone really has the right answer yet. We're still at the beginning of having that conversation. Other questions? In addition to the smart technologies, smart cities conversation that we're having, I think there's another tier, and it alludes to a lot of the equity things that we've been talking about, is underneath that is the, um, the smart infrastructure. Mm-hmm. A lot of municipalities all across the country right now are starting to go, are, are being, being um, first stage asked from communications companies yeah. to start in, installing 5G. And what are the implications to that in, in, the, in the landscape? And as far as like this heat map in particular, equity. If if these companies are allowed to only go where where the money is going to give them the most bang for the buck, initially we're just going to double down on inequities we're seeing in the data because we're not capturing as much or we're not able to deliver better technological products because that kind of infrastructure is lacking in certain geographic places that aren't represented well. What 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 do you what should municipalities be asking uh, these companies for? In respects to like data sharing to begin with, and and, and um, anything else, when when we start talking to them on these contract levels, yeah, I think that one of the places where city governments have almost failed to recognize the power that they have in, in, with regards to technology is letting the technology companies dictate the terms of what they're doing. I mean, Uber sort of being the most egregious example of this, just sort of coming in without any permission, without even asking, and then just really running ramshot over cities. And I think that city governments have learned their lesson a little bit in realizing, you know, especially larger cities, like if you're in New York or San Francisco, uh, you have the ability to walk away from the table or to enforce these standards. And I think that as the conversation has shifted away from technology is amazing, technology is going to solve these problems towards Technology has opportunities, but also there are a lot of risks, and we have to really understand where those dangers are. Uh, The city governments are becoming a lot more thoughtful and are being willing to try and set those boundaries on the terms and use that negotiation process as a way of trying to limit what the – trying to create the right environment for the public interest and the private interest to be aligned and limiting the places where those interests are going to diverge. Do you remember the, um, what is the Susan Crawford and Maria's work? Mm-hmm. Um, what do they call it? I don't know. So, uh, fiber. 
Yeah, there is. was something else. There was a title for either a book or a paper they wrote. Um, but Susan Crawford over at the law school, she has an appointment here. Do you familiar with Susan's work? She, they, they look a lot at, um, I guess, just tech deserts in, in general where um, putting aside all the smart stuff up here, the infrastructure that underlies our entire country and how you can live on this line and have access to Internet and be able to apply to college and do work, and then you can sit on this line and none of that applies and how and the trickling effects that has on people's livelihoods. Um, and I think you're right, we don't talk about that enough. And when we let companies, especially private sector companies, Google Fiber, for example, is a great example where call it a vanity project, call it a deep desire to change the world. It could be any one of those things. Um, but they're given this task to go and transform Internet for the whole country. And in some cases kind of failed. But what's different from the public sector is there's not the same deep sense of responsibility to the citizens as as there there should be. Um, and so now it can be quite dangerous to have these companies go in and determine um, what the technology looks like, which translates to, um, you know, the way people can or can't operate in their day-to-day, which translates to the, like, economic stability, et cetera. Time for one more question or two, well, a couple more questions. Let's start, let's start back here and we'll go around there and take these two more, and then we'll finish. How can we bridge the gap between the knowledge and um, perspectives of technology workers or, like, engineers um, and the people in the government who are buying their uh, stuff? Uh, fascinating presentation. I was just curious uh, about whether there are efforts to uh, have rules on what information is disclosed about uh what technology cities are using, how it works, and what data they're collecting. Good. And last question, please. Hi, my name's Martin. Uh, When you first put that slide up, uh, the first thing that popped into my mind is here is a beautiful civics education opportunity. And uh, so to keep the question short, I'm just wondering if in any way did this make it back into the Boston Public Schools as part of their civics education program for citizen (laughs) engagement? All right, folks. Cool. I'll sort of work yeah. work backwards. Uh, so this did not has not worked its way back into the civics education, uh, although there are definitely lots of cool ways they could do so. Though it did uh, end up shifting the way that the city brought in much more different types of data, much more public engagement to inform this process. So it, it did lead to a, a completely changed internal process for managing this system. Um, one of the major shifts in the public access is through these various task forces and ordinances that are enforcing transparency and accountability of these types of systems. So, for example, the surveillance ordinance that Cambridge has requires the city to publish all of the surveillance equipment and uh, software that it has and do impact assessments and release much more information. So one of the major trends that's happening is policies, they're actually enforcing this type of uh, transparency and dissemination of information about what they're doing, what companies they're working with, what data is being collected, all of that stuff. So there's definitely a trend in that direction. Um, and then they all let you take the last one since that's the, also your domain. The, the, the question about how do we address more informed, sounds like how do we address um, better informed policymakers or people just buying technology and government. I again, we're we're behind and we're at the beginning. That we have things that are available now that are called band aid fixes, like the Tech Congress fellows, where people can go. Technologists will rotate in through Congress for maybe a year or two to 
inform Congress and lawmakers on how to make technology decisions. So instead of being a lobbyist, you can go be inside government and help make the decisions. We have organizations across the world, similar to the United States Digital Service, um, the UK, Australia, Estonia, um, Taiwan, so many countries where um, technologists are coming to work inside government and they're working to build technology, but because they're in the room, you end up answering questions about all these things. And you cancel contracts that don't make sense. You call out the, uh, you call out, um, you call out companies that are making promises that don't exist. So right now it's AI and blockchain. They'll have some promise to government and having a tech person in the room just to call upon um, really makes a difference as well. And there's a whole entire public interest tech movement that's existed for a long time, but now there's a lot of foundation money that's thrown at it that is exactly looking to address this. And schools like the Kennedy School, I think only just four years ago decided that this is important. There's an open faculty position for the tech policy person. Um, so we're really, all of you students are, are in the position where you can really help shape what that really, really looks like. All right, let's uh, thank our speakers, please. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.